The National Archives podcast series, an overview of the newly released files from 1984 with contemporary record specialists Mark Dunton and Simon Demacy. I'm joined by Simon Demacy and Mark Dunton, who are contemporary record specialists at the National Archives, to discuss the latest release of cabinet papers to the National Archives. This time the year is 1984. So Simon, if I could start with you, um, one of people's memories from that year, standout memories, will probably be of uh, striking miners, Arthur Scargill. So what kind of things do we learn about the way Cabin operated uh, during the strike? Yes, of course, there's a big event in 1984, the beginning of the miners' strike, which goes into 1985. In terms of what we learn about government operations, what's fascinating is at the beginning of the strike and in the immediate lead-up to it, the group of ministers working on operations regarding regarding the strike um, shrinks. Um, There's a very small group, um, and deliberately so, of ministers that work on it. And there's even the line uh, that this is designed to ensure there are no misunderstandings amongst cabinet ministers. So they're very keen to keep uh, a small group running on this. And um, that continues when the ministerial group on coal is established um, after the beginning of the strike, which um, which uh, which meets on a at least a weekly basis throughout. And there were key moments throughout the year 1984 where it looked as if perhaps the, the, the NUM, the National Union of Mine Workers, uh, might be successful. Yes, there there were particular pressure points, I'd say, on the on the government. Uh, the beginning of the strike, as you can probably imagine, was was one of concern. Um, in the March of 1984, and at that time, uh, the government was a little perturbed about uh, police activity. There's a line within the documents which which say that they were looking for the police to pursue the more vi- the more vigorous interpretation of their duties, which is a quite interesting um, uh, thing for a cabinet minister to say in, on the record. But um, you know, they were clearly concerned that these uh, flying pickets were, were getting around the country too easily and um, wanted to crack down on that. The other pressure points later in the year usually coincided with when other unions either were striking or were threatening to strike. So in July, the uh, dockers were on strike, and this is a very concerning moment for the government where they are worried that their contingency plans of of foreign coal coming in and being distributed around the country would be threatened. That's the point when they start talking about looking into the procedures around a state of emergency and possibly using troops to transport coal. Um, And that's clearly uh, an intensification of of government activity, clearly a a moment when they're worried um, that these coal stocks won't be kept up. The next pressure point was in October 1984 when NACODs, the kind of safety um, men at the pits, threatened to strike. And uh, this is quite concerning again for the government where those coal stocks which were presumed to last well into 1985 uh, were suddenly threatened that those working mines were not going to be able to stay open, uh, the very few working mines that were still going. And that's the point when in the files we can see that they're talking about the possible contingency plans, one of which is the three-day week. It gets mentioned in an examination paper that's put before Margaret Thatcher. And obviously that has resonance 
you know, for many people alive and as now, but especially then, it was, you know, less than 10 years since the, the three-day week previously. So, you know, we're, we're looking at a quite a concerning moment for the government then as well. And what was the government's response to and view of uh, the NUM tactics? Well, in, in terms of the government's view of NUM tactics, I, I suppose we don't really learn that much. We know what Margaret Thatcher thought of them. Um, we know that she thought that, you know, there's nothing more extreme than a comment like the, the enemy within, within the documents. But um, what we do learn is that there's a continued effort by the government to, to, to keep at least a veneer of separation between them and the striking miners. So it's a constant effort to keep the NCB and the NUM as the two parties in this dispute and not let the government be perceived as being in direct confrontation with the striking miners. Now, this uh, is manifest in a number of ways. Um, you know, even when uh, surveys of public opinion were being uh, you know, uh, collated, um, they were in secret, not public. And uh, the government is concerned even of the results of these. It's a high... Uh, percentage of people who, who support the striking miners and they put this down to being a poor job in the communications um, work of the NCB. Again, they don't take over, they just continue to influence the NCB and McGregor, its chairman, to try and do a better, do a, try to do a better job. And the story of the miner strike is to be continued, I guess. Exactly. The strike goes into 1985 and we, we don't have the files from then yet, so yes, some more to come, and we look forward to seeing how the story ends. Thanks. And uh, something that, another incident that many people will remember from that year, April of 1984, the murder of Yvonne Fletcher. Mark, do we learn anything about, new about that from these files? Um, <coughs> yes, um, we do. Uh, in particular, um, it's the fact that um, a warning was uh, delivered by Libyan officials um, the evening before the demonstration at St. James's Square, um, which happened on the 17th of April 1984, there's a very interesting uh, telegram from Oliver Miles, who's the British ambassador to Libya, and he is sending this from Tripoli. Oliver Miles gives this account. He says, um, I was called to the, uh, foreign, uh, the, the uh, Libyan foreign ministry um, after midnight on the 16th stroke 17th of April and um, the Libyan official that he uh, spoke with uh, s told him that the Libyan government would not be responsible for the consequences if the demonstration which was planned for um, taking place in front of the Libyan People's Bureau in St. James's Square uh, said, and so the Libyan official said we will not be responsible for the consequences if the demonstration took place, and they might include violence. Now, Oliver Miles gives a robust reply. He says, uh, you know, I said Britain was a free country, and uh, I said that threats of violence do not, did not impress the British government. And, and then Miles uh, says, um, uh, as he was shown out, he spoke to another Libyan official who seemed as little impressed by this performance as I was. And uh, he says, I made a bet with him that no such demonstration will take place. Grateful to know the outcome. Now, of course, Oliver Miles um, 
you know, there's no way really that he could have predicted that, uh, you know, guns would have opened up from the uh, Libyan People's Bureau into the crowd of demonstrators, uh, you know, resulting in the death of um, a young policewoman. But, you know, it is interesting that this file, this warning was delivered. Uh, incidentally, on the same telegram, there is a note saying, please file, first seen in number 10 on request on the 29th of April, uh, which is a note by Robin Butler. But in fact, the file does also reveal, the very same file reveals uh, that um, the, war uh, the warning was also delivered uh, at the Foreign and Commonwealth Office in London on the 16th of April. And um, two members of the Libyan People's Bureau, uh, as they styled themselves, um, called at the FCO at midnight uh, and uh, and again in the morning to say that the Libyan authorities in Tripoli took a serious view of the demonstration that was planned, uh, asking for action to be taken to stop it. Now, that request was conveyed to the Home Office uh, and the police during the night, and, uh, but Special Branch decided, uh, nonetheless, to allow the demonstration to go ahead. So, what? well, the files are showing events happening in real time. This is the... You know, the great thing about the files, you know, um, you can date these, these telegrams, you can see the hour they were received. Um, so we'll leave it, you know, for others to judge, really, um, as to uh, whether things could have been different. I mean, I, I would say that hindsight is a wonderful thing, and, uh, you know, I don't think it's still, I think, a bit of a leap to predicting that, you know, such, you know, um, a terrible thing would have happened uh, as did. And, of course, no one was ever brought to justice for no. the crime. No, that's right. I mean, you know, the identity of the, the perpetrator of the murder remains, um, you know, uncertain. It, it's also interesting to reflect that um, among the files um, is a list of the, uh, the Libyan staff who, uh, you know, who eventually left the embassy. Uh, there's a list of them. Who, they were processed uh, at uh, Sunningdale... Um, and um, there's a list of about 30 names uh, with their roles in the embassy, and in three cases there is no position given. It's, it's quite possible that one of the names on that list could have been um, the murderer, but you know, this is speculation, yeah. And Mark, another of the very shocking events from that year, uh, in October of that year, at the Conservative Party conference in Brighton, the attempt to kill the Prime Minister. Yes, I mean, you know, the, the Brighton uh, bomb of the 12th of October, 84, was a very shocking event. And while there isn't um, a huge amount about the actual bomb and the explosion and, you know, all the immediate consequences, however, there is some very interesting material uh, concerning the sort of political impact of the bomb in relation to um, some... Anglo-Irish negotiations, which were actually going on behind the scenes at this time, led by the Cabinet Secretary, um, Robert Armstrong. And um, when, you know, th this event obviously had a major impact on that process. Um, and um, there's some very interesting comments written by Mrs. Thatcher in her own hand. Um, she states, um, the bomb has slowed things down and may in the end kill any new initiative, because I suspect it will be the first in a series. Mrs. Thatcher is very concerned um, about the appearance that um, 
if these Anglo-Irish agree, if these Anglo-Irish discussions continue, uh, and uh, you know, at the same pace, that it may it may look as if Britain is being bombed into making concessions, uh, and that is a, for her would be a kind of key principle transgressed. You know, um, so I think it's also you know it's 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 kind of interesting to you know she says because I suspect it will be the first in a series, you know. Um, it's a very sober sort of comment from her. So these, these agreements, th- these negotiations, you see, were, were, you know, were about um, discussions to do with um, border security and, and trying to move towards a new, higher level kind of agreement, really, uh, there with, with the Republic of Ireland. Um, now, in this climate, things did get, you know, quite fraught. And there was a rather tense summit in November. But, uh, no, the com- you know, the, these sort of uh, comments of the Prime Minister are interesting. It, of course, uh, Mrs Thatcher did um, famously uh, talk about um, business as usual um, the day after the bombing, you know, when she made the speech at the uh, Conservative Party conference. Um, but it, it is known that, you know, she, of course, it did shake her what happened. And... Um, it should not be forgotten that uh, Indira Gandhi, leader of India, was uh, also was was actually assassinated two weeks after the Brighton bomb. But um, despite this, despite this setback, the negotiations continued and did uh, actually conclude with the successful signing of the Anglo-Irish Agreement in 1985, um, a major achievement of the Thatcher years. Towards the end of 1984. Uh, Thatcher received a visitor from the Soviet Union. Can you tell us a bit about that, Simon? Yes, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev uh, visited the Prime Minister in December of 1984. Um, Gorbachev was not yet leader of the Soviet Union. That um, was still to come for him. Uh, But he was a growing influence in the party and was um, a very uh, significant member of the Politburo. As you can probably imagine, this opportunity to visit the leader of the United Kingdom. And the um, file on this meeting is, is very interesting for a number of reasons. The meeting that they had uh, on the 16th of December, um, the official meeting, I should say, covered a lot of important ground, um, arms deals and arms treaties and um, you know, various uh, other significant uh, you know, high politics issues. But the particularly interesting note is that of the lunchtime meeting between Thatcher and Gorbachev, where they really um, opened up, let's say. In, during that meeting, we see a frank exchange of ideas. Um, it's probably no surprise to any listeners that these two people came from differing ends on the, of the political spectrum, but the, the frankness of their discussion is, is still quite startling. They press each other on ideological differences. At one point, uh, Thatcher claims that she could prove to Gorbachev that the British system was better um, and is really adamant that um, she can almost convince him during this discussion of, of, of that, quote, fact. The discussion continues, however, and um, they do continue to uh, have a conflicting view of things. At one point, um, Thatcher does question him on the point of uh, Soviet funding of the striking miners. Gorbachev denies any knowledge. He says, we do not fund the striking miners. 
and he turns to his side and notices uh, an official kind of cla- uh, he notices an official catching his eye and then swiftly says as far as I know um, it's, a, it's a really interesting meeting we, you know this frankness of exchange uh, you, can be, you can see it as a num- in a number of ways you could see it as being yes okay these are two quite um, hard headed individuals having an exchange of opinion but um, the way I would see it is it's significant because Thatcher's finally making headway, building up a real relationship with um, a Soviet leader. Um, at this time when there are you know, these grey, shadowy, unknowable figures like Andropov and Janenko, um, you, you felt as though that there wasn't really any kind of personality that the uh, Western leadership could uh, discuss with and that seems to be breaking down during this meeting even though it's an antagonistic conversation you're beginning to see a genuine discussion at the end Gorbachev toasts Mrs Thatcher and you can really see that as a beginning of a new working relationship I think but it didn't all go smoothly did it on that visit (laughs) no there's this one very interesting uh, story when Gorbachev was in Whitehall visiting uh, the Houses of Parliament and uh, as his uh, motorcade was driving past he thought he would uh, drop in at number 10 Um, and he was allowed to, uh, with his entourage, get to the door but unfortunately, unfortunately the Prime Minister wasn't there I believe that was when she was visiting Hong Kong so this rather extraordinary situation of uh, Gorbachev turning up but no one being there to receive him had uh, occurred. Now, uh, the note in the file describes how fortunately there were no photographers present, and I suppose this is the point that we should take from this, that not only would this have been an embarrassing situation, a leader, t- you know, a leader of a country turning up at the Prime Minister's door and no one being there, but more it could have been uh, difficult given the context of the you know, uh, difficult relationship with the Soviet Union. Um, it could have been seen as a snub in the global context. And there was a rather extraordinary incident around the visit of another leader, uh, this time François Mitterrand of France. Tell us a bit about what happened before he was due to arrive in Britain. Yes, this is one of the more extraordinary stories I've heard of, actually, in in kind of political circles. Yes, President Mitterrand visited the UK in October of 1984. Um, But before he arrived, it, it... transpired that uh, a French security officer had actually left explosives, not fake explosives, actual explosives, in the uh, French ambassador's residence where Mitron was due to stay in an apparent attempt to, to test out the British security services. Now, this story isn't um, new in many ways. It was in the public domain as uh, questions were asked in the House but what we do learn now is the uh, cabinet's reaction to this, to this uh, story. Um, not only, I should add, not only were these explosives uh, found in the French ambassador's residence, but they were also found in the Grosvenor House Hotel where the French security officer was staying. So a real kind of, well, extraordinarily um, flagrant <laughs> disregard for personal safety or safety of anyone else. But anyway... Uh, the, 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 the cabinet reacted in a, in a very uh, strident manner, as you can probably imagine. This is from the uh, conclusion of the 
meeting on the 25th of October. In discussion, it was agreed that the episode was inexplicable and unacceptable. Um, And they go on to say the failure of the French government to explain, let alone apologise for, what had occurred was astonishing. So these these cabinet uh, conclusions, I should add, are usually fairly dry, uh, you know, fairly kind of functional uh, descriptions of what happened. Um, But here we really get a sense of how frustrated the cabinet was with this situation. Uh, The Prime Minister, summing up the discussion, said that the Cabinet were astonished at what had occurred. This is really an inexplicable situation, and uh, the Cabinet certainly saw it as such. And one figure who crops up time and again in these files, Mark, is that of John Redwood. Yes. Can you tell us a bit about his role at the time? Sure, yes. Well, he um, was head of the policy unit at Number 10, and um, really, his uh, his voice is ev- everywhere to be found, actually, in these files, because um, there are a whole string of memos from him, and he often he's urging the government to be bolder, um, to be uh, more radical, um, to make deeper cuts in public spend- expenditure. Um, and um, so, really... He is, in a sense, one of these people that would be classed as a sort of outrider, um, saying the sort of things that perhaps the Prime Minister would have a lot of sympathy with, but perhaps could not necessarily always say herself. So he is a very interesting figure, and he does seem to have, um, you know, a fair, um, a certain amount of influence. One of the most uh, unusual finds on the files, really, is... um, is a, uh, a story um, that John Redwood wrote, and, it, and uh, it's really actually a talk that he gave to the policy unit, and it's called um, Tilting at Castles. And um, the remarkable thing about it is that it's written in the uh, style of a, a children's story. So it actually begins um, once upon a time, or about a year ago, to be more precise there lived a noble and chivalrous group of knights in a great big castle called the Stock Exchange. Now, uh, he's going on to say that uh, these knights who lived in this great big castle, the Stock Exchange, you know, they worked very hard and and they competed with each other. Um, And, of course, they loved feasting and jousting and pillaging. And then he stops himself and says, well, maybe we... Perhaps we'd better not be too explicit. But... He then goes on to... um, He's actually really making a a serious political point in a way because, you know, he's he's really saying that these knights, these privileged knights in the stock exchange, you know, they're they're enjoying uh, the fruits of their labours and so forth. But he's, he's, of course, he's implying that it's a very, very enclosed, um, tight, uh, exclusive sort of group... And uh, outside the Stock Exchange Castle, he says, lives a great population of subject peoples and peasants. Um, And they, you know, they are rather uh, restricted in what they can do, you know, with their savings and with their investments. And really what's implied here is he's really arguing for um, a sort of opening up of the Stock Exchange um, to, uh, you know, to make it uh, more accessible uh, so that um, you know um, other people can have a stake, basically, and that's really the point underneath the story. 
Uh, but the story, as I say, is written in this manner, uh, as if really one could almost imagine imagine it as a sort of Jackanory story, you know. Uh, but he's making a he's making a serious point, and of course the um, the actual um, deregulation of the stock exchange didn't actually happen until three years later with the Big Bang, um, when uh, you know the the exclusive firms in the uh, city were um, well, you know that it was really a whole kind of you know outside outside foreign companies could actually make you know make investments in the city and. Uh, provide services, whereas before the services have all been really tightly controlled. So some of the changes did happen about three years later, but it shows, you could argue, it shows you know, John Redwood with an eye to future reform. Uh, but it's certainly a, a rare find on the files. And as ever, Mark, the central figure in the story is that of Mrs Thatcher herself. Yes. Uh, this year we have her appointment diaries for the first time. Yes, yes, well, I mean, you know, they're very interesting. Um, I suppose what they they show is um, the incredible um, burden uh, burdens that a prime minister in the modern era labours under. Um, uh, the you can see all her appointments, you know, hour by hour, every day, uh, and uh, you know, on some days the appointments are absolutely chock a block, particularly on foreign visits, and you just wonder how did she manage to pack all of that into a single day. Um, but why, why I find them so interesting is because they've also very nice touches of kind of personal colour in there too. So um, we can see um, all her hair appointments and um, it's been calculated that um, in 1984, for example, the average number of hair appointments per month was 11. Now, Mrs Thatcher's hair, many people have argued, was an essential part of her armoury. Um, she always was at pains to make sure that she was presented really, really well. And uh, we also, I mean, again, you know, amongst her busy schedule, factored in are matters such as breakfast with Dennis Thatcher. So that's recorded as an appointment. Or a walk with Carol is recorded as an appointment. Um, and then there are the, you know, some slightly more, you know, things which look a little bit bizarre almost, you know, uh, you know, against all the other things. So there are things like um, witnessing salmon jumping at Balmoral. So what do we learn from this? Well, it's more, yet more proof, really, of Mrs. Thatcher's uh, incredible uh, dynamism, I think. Um, she was, you know, very hardworking. She famously um, said that she could manage on four hours sleep. And... Um, you know, when you see her schedule, it just it reinforces, um, as I say, the heavy burdens that any prime minister would labour under in this in this modern era. So, all in all, Mark, 1984 was a was a very busy year. Yes, very eventful year, uh, Tommy. And um, you know, this is another great release um, from the National Archives. Um, it's brilliant that um, we've got this release of records. Um, earlier than we would have done otherwise under the old arrangements under the 30-year rule. Um, and uh, just to remind listeners that um, we're you know, gradually moving to a 20-year rule. Um, with, this is happening in a transition over the next 10 years. And this means that um, we will, generally speaking, have two big annual releases a year. Uh, this is what is planned. Um, and uh, this means that uh, by, the, uh, by the year 2023, 
Um, we'll be looking at records from 2003. We'll have reached a 20-year gap. This is an exciting time for contemporary historians um, as material from the Thatcher era gets opened up a great deal more quickly than it would have done otherwise. Um, and, um, you know, there's lots more to come. So, uh, you know, watch this space. Thank you, Mark. And I should say that many of the files which we've discussed today will be available on the National Archives website from the 3rd of January and they'll be free to download for one month. Mark, Simon, thank you very much. Thank you. This podcast was recorded on the 17th of December 2013 at the National Archives in Kew. This podcast is copyrighted to the National Archives, all rights reserved. <laughs>